Section 14 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Leonard Wilson. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 2, Section 14. Selected Works by Gabriele D'Annunzio Gabriele D'Annunzio, 1864 An Italian poet and novelist of early promise, who has become a somewhat unique figure in contemporary literature, Gabriele D'Annunzio is a native of the Abruzzi, born in the little village of Pescara on the Adriatic coast. Its picturesque scenery has formed the background for more than one of his stories. At the age of fifteen, while still a student at Prato, he published his first volume of poems, Intermezzo di Rime, Interludes of Verse, grand plastic verse of an impeccable prosody, as he maintained in their defense, but so daringly erotic that their appearance created no small scandal. Other poems followed at intervals, notably Il Canto Nuovo, The New Song, Rome, 1882, Isoteo e la Chimera, Isoteo and the Chimera, Rome, 1890, Poema Paradisiaco, and Uri Navali, Marine Odes, Milan, 1893, which leave no doubt of his high rank as poet. The novel, however, is his chosen vehicle of expression, and the one which gives fullest scope to his rich and versatile genius. His first long story, Il Piacere, Pleasure, appeared in 1889. As the title implies, it was pervaded with a frank, almost complacent sensuality, which its author has since been inclined to deprecate. Nevertheless, the book received merited praise for its subtle portrayal of character and incident, and its exuberance of phraseology, and, more than all, for the promise which it suggested. With the publication of L'Innocente, the author for the first time showed a real seriousness of purpose. His views of life had meanwhile essentially altered. As was just, he confessed, I began to pay for my errors, my disorders, my excesses. I began to suffer with the same intensity with which I had formerly enjoyed myself. Sorrow had made of me a new man. Accordingly, his later works, while still emphatically realistic, are chastened by an underlying tone of pessimism. Passion is no longer the keynote of life but rather as exemplified in Il Triunfo della Morte, the prelude of death. Leaving Rome, where, like the outpouring of the sewers, a flood of base desires invaded every square and crossroad ever more putrid and more swollen, D'Annunzio retired to Francovia d'Al Mare, a few miles from his birthplace. There he lives in seclusion, esteemed by the simple-minded, honest, and somewhat fanatical peasantry, to whose quaint and primitive manners his books owe much of their distinctive atmosphere. 
in italy d'annunzio's career has been watched with growing interest until recently however he was scarcely known to the world at large when a few poems translated into french brought his name into immediate prominence within a year three paris journals acquired rights of translation from him and he has since occupied the attention of such authoritative french critics as henri rabousson rene dumic edouard rode eugène melchior de vogue and most recently ferdinand brunetiere all of whom seem to have a clearer appreciation of his quality than even his critics at home at the same time there is a small but hostile minority among the french novelists whose literary feelings are voiced by leon daudet in a vehement protest under the title assez d'étrangers enough of foreigners it is too soon to pass final judgment on a d'annunzio's style which has been undergoing an obvious transition not yet accomplished realist and psychologist symbolist and mystic by turns and first and always a poet he has been compared successively to bourget and maupassant tolstoy and dostoevsky theophile gautier and catul mendes dante gabriel rossetti and baudelaire such complexity of style is the outcome of his cosmopolitan taste in literature and his tendency to assimilate for future use whatever pleases him in each successive author shakespeare and goethe keats and heine plato and zoroaster figure among the names which throng his pages while his unacknowledged and often unconscious indebtedness to writers of lesser magnitude notably the self-styled sar joseph peladan has lately raised an outcry of plagiarism yet whatever leaves his pen borrowed or original has received the unmistakable imprint of his powerful individuality it is easy to trace the influences under which successively d'annunzio has come they are essentially french he is a french writer in an italian medium his early short sketches noteworthy chiefly for their morbid intensity were modeled largely on maupassant whose frank unblushing realism left a permanent imprint upon the style of his admirer and whose later analytic tendency probably had an important share in turning his attention to the psychological school il piacere though largely inspired by paul bourget contains as large an element of notre coeur and bel ami as of le disciple and coeur de femme in this novel andrea sperelli affords us the type of d'annunzio's heroes who aside from differences due to age and environment are all essentially the same somewhat weak yet undeniably attractive containing all of them something of a don juan and a cherubini with a don juan element preponderating the plot of il piacere is not remarkable either for depth or for novelty being the needlessly detailed record of sperelli's relations with two married women of totally opposite types giovanni episcopo is a brief painful tragedy of low life written under the influence of russian evangelism 
and full of reminiscences of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Giovanni is a poor clerk, of a weak, pusillanimous nature, completely dominated by a coarse, brutal companion, Giulio Vanser, who makes him an abject slave, until a detected forgery compels Vanser to flee the country. Episcopo then marries Ginevra, the pretty but unprincipled waitress at his pension, who speedily drags him down to the lowest depths of degradation, making him a mere nonentity in his own household, willing to live on the proceeds of her infamy. They have one child, a boy, Ciro, on whom Giovanni lavishes all his suppressed tenderness. After ten years of this martyrdom, the hated Vanser reappears, and installs himself as husband in the Episcopal household. Giovanni submits in helpless fury, till one day Vanser beats Ginevra, and little Ciro intervenes to protect his mother. Vanser turns on the child, and a spark of manhood is at last kindled in Giovanni's breast. He springs upon Vanser, and with the pent-up rage of years stabs him. L'Innocente, D'Annunzio's second long novel, also bears the stamp of Russian influence. It is a gruesome, repulsive story of domestic infidelity, in which he has handled the theory of pardon, the motive of numerous recent French novels, like Daudet's La Petite Paroise and Paul Marguerite's La Tourmente. In another extended work, Il Triomfo della Morte, The Triumph of Death, Donizio appears as a convert to Nietzsche's philosophy and to Wagnerianism. Ferdinand Brunetier has pronounced it unsurpassed by the naturalistic schools of England, France, or Russia. In brief, the hero, Giorgio Orispa, a morbid sensualist with an inherited tendency to suicide, is led by fate through a series of circumstances which keep the thought of death continually before him. They finally goad him on to fling himself from a cliff into the sea, dragging with him the woman he loves. The Virgini della Rocca, Maidens of the Crag, his last story, is more an idyllic poem than a novel. Claudio Contelmo, sickened with the corruption of Rome, retires to his old home in the Abruzzi, where he meets the three sisters Massimilla, Anatolia, Violante, names expressive as faces full of light and shade, and in which I seemed already to discover an infinity of grace, of passion, and of sorrow. It is inevitable that he should choose one of the three, but which? And in the denouement the solution is only half implied. Donizio is now occupied with a new romance, and coming years will doubtless present him all the more distinctively as a writer of Italy on whom French influences have been seed sowed in fertile ground. The place in contemporary Italian of such work as his is indisputably considerable. THE DROWNED BOY FROM THE TRIUMPH OF DEATH all of a sudden Albadora, the septuagenarian Cibele, 
she who had given life to twenty-two sons and daughters came toiling up the narrow lane into the court and indicating the neighboring shore where it skirted the promontory on the left announced breathlessly down yonder there has been a child drowned candia made the sign of the cross giorgio arose and ascended to the loggia to observe the spot designated upon the sand below the promontory in close vicinity to the chain of rocks and the tunnel he perceived a blotch of white presumably the sheet which hid the little body a group of people had gathered around it as ippolita had gone to mass with elena at the chapel of the port he yielded to his curiosity and said to his entertainers i am going down to see why asked candia why do you wish to put a pain in your heart hastening down the narrow lane he descended by a short cut to the beach and continued along the water reaching the spot somewhat out of breath he inquired what has happened the assembled peasants saluted him and made way for him one of them answered tranquilly oh, the son of a mother has been drowned another clad in linen who seemed to be standing guard over the corpse bent down and drew aside the sheet the inert little body was revealed extended upon the unyielding sand it was a lad eight or nine years old fair and frail with slender limbs his head was supported on his few humble garments rolled up in place of pillow the shirt the blue trousers the red sash the cap of limp felt his face was but slightly livid with flat nose prominent forehead and long long lashes the mouth was half open with thick lips which were turning blue between which the widely spaced teeth gleamed white his neck was slender flaccid as a wilted stem and seamed with tiny creases the jointure of the arms at the shoulder looked feeble the arms themselves were fragile and covered with a down similar to the fine plumage which clothes the bodies of newly hatched birds the whole outline of the ribs was distinctly visible down the middle of the breast the skin was divided by a darker line the navel stood out like a knot the feet slightly bloated had assumed the same sallow color as the little hands which were callous and strewn with warts with white nails beginning to turn livid on the left arm on the thighs near the groin and further down on the knees and along the legs appeared reddish blotches of scurf every detail of this wretched little body assumed in the eyes of giorgio an extraordinary significance immobile as it was and fixed forever in the rigidity of death how was he drowned where he questioned lowering his voice the man dressed in linen gave with some show of impatience the account which he had probably had to repeat too many times already he had a brutal countenance square-cut with bushy brows and a large mouth harsh and savage only a little while after leading the sheep back to their stalls the lad taking his breakfast along with him had gone down together with a comrade to bathe he had hardly set foot in the water when he had fallen and was drowned 
At the cries of his comrades, someone from the house overhead on the bluff had hurried down, and wading in up to the knees had dragged him from the water half-dead. They had turned him upside down to make him throw up the water. They had shaken him, but to no purpose. To indicate just how far the poor little fellow had gone in, the man picked up a pebble and threw it into the sea. "'There, only to there, at three yards from the shore.' The sea lay at rest, breathing peacefully, close to the head of the dead child. But the sun blazed fiercely down upon the sand, and something pitiless, emanating from that sky of flame, and from those stolid witnesses, seemed to pass over the pallid corpse. "'Why, asked Giorgio, do you not place him in the shade in one of the houses on a bed?' "'He is not to be moved,' declared the man on guard, "'until they hold the inquest.' "'At least carry him into the shade down there below the embankment.' Stubbornly the man reiterated, "'He is not to be moved.' There could be no sadder sight than that frail, lifeless little being, extended on the stones, and watched over by the impassive brute, who repeated his account every time in the selfsame words, and every time made the selfsame gesture, throwing a pebble into the sea. "'There, only to there.' A woman joined the group a hook-nosed termagant with grey eyes and sour lips mother of the dead boy's comrade she manifested plainly a mistrustful restlessness as if she anticipated some accusation against her own son she spoke with bitterness and seemed almost to bear a grudge against the victim it was his destiny god had said to him go into the sea and end yourself she gesticulated with vehemence what did he go in for if he did not know how to swim a young lad a stranger in the district the son of a mariner repeated contemptuously yes what did he go in for we as who know how to swim other people joined the group gazed with cold curiosity then lingered or passed on a crowd occupied the railroad embankment another gathered on the crest of the promontory as if at a spectacle children seated or kneeling played with pebbles tossing them into the air and catching them now on the back and now in the hollow of their hands they all showed the same profound indifference to the presence of other people's troubles and of death another woman joined the group on her way home from mass wearing a dress of silk and all her gold ornaments for her also the harassed custodian repeated his account for her also he indicated the spot in the water she was talkative i am always saying to my children don't you go into the water or i will kill you the sea is the sea who can save himself she called to mind other instances of drowning she called to mind the case of the drowned man with the head cut off driven by the waves all the way to san vito and found among the rocks by a child here among these rocks he came and told us there is a dead man there we thought he was joking but we came and we found he had no head they had an inquest he was buried in a ditch then in the night he was dug up again his flesh was all mangled and like jelly but he still had his boots on the judge said see they are better than mine so he must have been a rich man 
and it turned out that he was a dealer in cattle they had killed him and chopped off his head and thrown him into the tronto she continued to talk in her shrill voice from time to time sucking in the superfluous saliva with a slight hissing sound and the mother when is the mother coming at that name there arose exclamations of compassion from all the women who had gathered the mother there comes the mother now and all of them turned around fancying that they saw her in the far distance along the burning strand some of the women could give particulars about her her name was ricangela she was a widow with seven children she had placed this one in a farmer's family so that he might tend the sheep and gain a morsel of bread one woman said gazing down at the corpse who knows how much pains the mother has taken in raising him another said to keep the children from going hungry she has even had to ask charity another told how only a few months before the unfortunate child had come very near strangling to death in a courtyard in a pool of water barely six inches deep all the women repeated it was his destiny he was bound to die that way and the suspense of waiting rendered them restless anxious the mother there comes the mother now feeling himself grow sick at heart giorgio exclaimed can't you take it into the shade or into the house so that the mother will not see him here naked on the stones under a sun like this stubbornly the man on guard objected he is not to be touched he is not to be moved until the inquest is held the bystanders gazed in surprise at the stranger candia's stranger their number was augmenting a few occupied the embankments shaded with acacias others crowned the promontory rising abruptly from the rocks here and there on the monstrous boulders a tiny boat lay sparkling like gold at the foot of the detached crag so lofty that it gave the effect of the ruins of some cyclopean tower confronting the immensity of the sea all at once from above on the height a voice announced there she is other voices followed the mother the mother all turned some stepped down from the embankment those on the promontory leaned far over all became silent in expectation the man on guard drew the sheet once more over the corpse in the midst of the silence the sea barely seemed to draw its breath the acacias barely rustled and then through the silence they could hear her cries as she drew near the mother came along the strand beneath the sun crying aloud she was clad in widow's mourning she tottered along the sand with bowed body calling out oh my son my son she raised her palms to heaven and then struck them upon her knees calling out my son one of her older sons with a red handkerchief bound around his neck to hide some sore followed her like one demented dashing aside his tears with the back of his hand she advanced along the strand beating her knees directing her steps toward the sheet and as she called upon her dead there issued from her mouth sounds scarcely human but rather like the howling of some savage dog as she drew near she bent over lower and lower she placed herself almost on all fours till reaching him she threw herself with a howl upon the sheet 
she arose again with hand rough and toil-stained hand toughened by every variety of labor she uncovered the body she gazed upon it a few instants motionless as though turned to stone then time and time again shrilly with all the power of her voice she called as if trying to awaken him my son my son my son sobs suffocated her kneeling beside him she beat her sides furiously with her fists she turned her despairing eyes round upon the circle of strangers during a pause in her paroxysms she seemed to recollect herself and then she began to sing she sang her sorrow in a rhythm which rose and fell continually like the palpitation of a heart it was the ancient monody which from time immemorial in the land of the abruzzi the women have sung over the remains of their relatives it was the melodious eloquence of sacred sorrow which renewed spontaneously in the profundity of her being this hereditary rhythm in which the mothers of bygone ages had modulated their lamentations she sang on and on open your eyes arise and walk my son how beautiful you are how beautiful you are she sang on for a morsel of bread i have drowned you my son for a morsel of bread i have borne you to the slaughter for that have i raised you but the irate woman with the hooked nose interrupted her it was not you who drowned him it was destiny it was not you who took him to the slaughter you had placed him in the midst of bread and making a gesture toward the hill where the house stood which had sheltered the lad she added they kept him there like a pink at the ear the mother continued oh my son who was it sent you who was it sent you here to drown and the irate woman who was it sent him it was our lord he said to him go into the water and end yourself as giorgio was affirming in a low tone to one of the bystanders that if succored in time the child might have been saved and that they had killed him by turning him upside down and holding him suspended by the feet he felt the gaze of the mother fixed upon him can't you do something for him sir she prayed can't you do something for him and she prayed oh madonna of the miracles work a miracle for him touching the head of the boy she repeated my son my son my son arise and walk on his knees in front of her was the brother of the dead boy he was sobbing but without grief and from time to time he glanced around with a face that suddenly grew indifferent another brother the oldest one remained at a little distance seated in the shade of a boulder and he was making a great show of grief hiding his face in his hands the women striving to console the mother were bending over her with gestures of compassion and accompanying her monody with an occasional lament and she sang on why have i sent you forth from my house why have i sent you to your death 
i have done everything to keep my children from hunger everything everything except to be a woman with a price and for a morsel of bread i have lost you this was the way you were to die thereupon the woman with the hawk nose raised her petticoats in an impetus of wrath entered the water up to her knees and cried look he came only to hear look the water is like oil it is a sign that he was bound to die that way with two strides she regained the shore look she repeated pointing to the deep imprint in the sand made by the man who recovered the body look the mother looked in a dull way but it seemed as if she neither saw nor comprehended after her first wild outbursts of grief there came over her brief pauses amounting to an obscurement of consciousness she would remain silent she would touch her foot or her leg with a mechanical gesture then she would wipe away her tears with the black apron she seemed to be quieting down then all of a sudden a fresh explosion would shake her from head to foot and prostrate her upon the corpse and i cannot take you away i cannot take you in these arms to the church my son my son she fondled him from head to foot she caressed him softly her savage anguish was softened to an infinite tenderness her hand the burnt and callous hand of a hard-working woman became infinitely gentle as she touched the eyes the mouth the forehead of her son how beautiful you are how beautiful you are she touched his lower lip already turned blue and as she pressed it slightly a whitish froth issued from the mouth from between his lashes she brushed away some speck very carefully as though fearful of hurting him how beautiful you are heart of your mamma his lashes were long very long and fair on his temples on his cheeks was a light bloom pale as gold do you not hear me rise and walk she took the little well-worn cap limp as a rag she gazed at it and kissed it saying i am going to make myself a charm out of this and wear it always on my breast she lifted the child a quantity of water escaped from the mouth and trickled down upon the breast oh madonna of the miracles perform a miracle she prayed raising her eyes to heaven in a supreme supplication then she laid softly down again the little being who had been so dear to her and took up the worn shirt the red sash the cap she rolled them up together in a little bundle and said this shall be my pillow on these i shall rest my head always at night on these i wish to die she placed these humble relics on the sand beside the head of her child and rested her temple on them stretching herself out as if on a bed both of them mother and son now lay side by side on the hard rocks beneath the flaming sky close to the homicidal sea and now she began to croon the very lullaby which in the past had diffused pure sleep over his infant cradle 
she took up the red sash and said i want to dress him the cross-grained woman who still held her ground assented let us dress him now and she herself took the garments from under the head of the dead boy she felt in the jacket-pocket and found a slice of bread and a fig do you see they had given him his food just before just before they cared for him like a pink at the ear the mother gazed upon the little shirt all soiled and torn over which her tears fell rapidly and said must i put that shirt on him the other woman promptly raised her voice to some one of her family above on the bluff quick bring one of nufrio's new shirts the new shirt was brought the mother flung herself down beside him get up ricangela get up solicited the women around her she did not heed them is my son to stay like that on the stones and i not stay there too like that on the stones my own son get up ricangela come away she arose she gazed once more with terrible intensity upon the little livid face of the dead once again she called with all the power of her voice my son my son my son <laughs> then with her own hands she covered up with the sheet the unheeding remains and the women gathered around her drew her a little to one side under shadow of a boulder they forced her to sit down they lamented with her little by little the spectators melted away there remained only a few of the women comforters there remained the man clad in linen the impassive custodian who was awaiting the inquest the dog-day sun poured down upon the strand and lent to the funeral sheet a dazzling whiteness amidst the heat the promontory raised its desolate aridity straight upward from the tortuous chain of rocks the sea immense and green pursued its constant even breathing and it seemed as if the languid hour was destined never to come to an end under shadow of the boulder opposite the white sheet which was raised up by the rigid form of the corpse beneath the mother continued her monody in the rhythm rendered sacred by all the sorrows past and present of her race and it seemed as if her lamentation was destined never to come to an end. To an Impromptu of Chopin When thou upon my breast art sleeping, I hear across the midnight gray, I hear the muffled note of weeping, So near, so sad, so far away. All night I hear the teardrops falling, Each drop by drop my heart must weep i hear the falling blood drops lonely whilst thou dost sleep whilst thou dost sleep from the triumph of death india india whose enamelled page unrolled like autumn's gilded pageant neath a sun that withers not for ancient kings undone or gods decaying in their shrines of gold where were thy vaunted princes that of old trod thee with thunder of thy saints was none to rouse thee when the onslaught was begun that shook the tinsel sceptre from thy hold dead 
though behind thy gloomy citadels the fountains lave their baths of porphyry dead though the rose-trees of thy myriad dells breathe as of old their speechless ecstasy dead though within thy temples courts and cells their countless lamps still supplicate for thee translated by thomas walsh for a library of the world's best literature end of section fourteen recording by leonard wilson of springfield ohio